Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to CNN Tonight. I'm Jake Tapper. Tonight... With exactly three weeks until the critical midterm elections here in the United States, candidates across the country in key races are increasingly taking extremism to the extreme. But what exactly is the definition of extremism? Obviously, that depends on who you ask. In a new ad airing in Pennsylvania, Republican U.S. Senate candidate Dr. Mehmet Oz paints himself as a middle-of-the-road kind of guy. And he labels his Democratic opponent, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, as extreme for supporting criminal justice reform and supporting traditional democratic economic plans. Guys like John Fetterman take everything to the extreme. Extremism on both sides makes things worse. We need balance, less extremism in Washington. I'm sure Fetterman would respond that most of the extremism in contemporary American politics is coming from inside Dr. Oz's own party, but extremism, extremist, That's an insult we're hearing on a lot of debate stages this month. And you're no doubt hearing it on your TVs. Masters is so extreme and so wrong for Arizona. Greg Abbott signed the most extreme abortion ban in the United States. Doug Mastriano is too extreme on abortion. This guy is so extreme. Way too extreme for me. But not Bill Deera. He's just too extreme. Stop extreme liberal Pat Ryan. For Republicans, the focus has been on some extreme Democratic policy positions. At the top of their list, defunding the police, which of course became a rallying cry for the progressive left after a Minneapolis police officer murdered George Floyd in 2020. The proposal being that cities should reduce police funding or close police departments entirely and use that money for other programs in the community, such as education or healthcare ending homelessness. Defund the police was a slogan embraced by many Democratic lawmakers, perhaps none more than those in the squad. Defunding the police has to happen. We need to defund the police. The current infrastructure that exists as policing in our city um, should not exist anymore. Yes, I support the defund movement. But most Democratic office holders rejected that proposal all the way up to candidate and now President Biden. We should all agree the answer is not to defund the police. It's to fund the police. Fund them. Fund them. Reforming the police is one thing, but most of the public never got on board with defunding the police because, you know, when someone's breaking into your house, who are you going to call? Even voters in Minneapolis, the city where George Floyd was killed, the modern birthplace of the defund the police movement, Minneapolis voters rejected a proposal to restructure their police department. Democratic Majority Whip Congressman Jim Clyburn blames the defund the police mantra for Democratic losses in 2020. I really believe that that's what caused uh, Joe Cunningham 
his seat. Jimmy Harrison started to plateau when defund the police showed up with a caption uh, on TV right across his head. These headlines can kill uh, a political effort. And now defund the police is being used against Democrats in battleground states such as Wisconsin, where polling has the Senate race neck and neck. Mandela Barnes stands with defund the police and supports no cash bail that releases dangerous criminals back into our communities. And with violent crime on the rise in cities throughout the United States, Democratic candidates are having the defund the police movement hung around their necks like an albatross. But there is a difference between extremists who are exiled to the outer fringes of their party and extremists who are embraced by their party, which brings me to Georgia Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. Many in our government are actively worshiping Satan. Name a deranged conspiracy theory, and this woman believes it. QAnon? Check. Q is anonymous, but he seems to be completely for the good. 9-11 truthism. You bet. The so-called plane that crashed into the Pentagon. It's odd there's never any evidence shown for a plane in the Pentagon. Mass shootings staged by the U.S. government. Of course. How do you get avid gun owners and people that support the Second Amendment to give up their guns and go along with anti-gun legislation? How do you do that? Maybe you accomplish that by performing a mass shooting into a crowd that is very likely to be conservative. Is that what happened in Las Vegas? No, it's not. In the long-ago political past of last year, it looked as though all of this crazy talk was too much for Republican Party leaders to stomach. And after a bunch of past statements were unearthed, in which Green indicated support for executing Democrats, among other hideous comments, the House of Representatives voted to strip Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments, and 11 members of her own party backed the move. It was supposed to be a political death sentence. But as Green's extremism became more mainstream in her party and her fundraising prowess and MAGA celebrity grew, so did her standing in the Republican Party. She sat front row as House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy rolled out his plans for the Republican takeover in November. And in recent days, she told the New York Times, quote, I think that to be the best speaker of the House and to please the base, he, Kevin McCarthy, is going to give me a lot of power and a lot of leeway. And if he doesn't, they're going to be very unhappy about it. And that's not in any way a threat at all, unquote. Nice political party you got here, Kevin. Be a shame if anything happened to it. It's weird to think it was only three years ago when the House Republican Party itself took steps to ostracize proud white nationalist Congressman Steve King of Iowa. King never failed to come up with new and inventive ways to be racist. He once riffed poetically about the cantaloupe-sized calf muscles of pot-hauling Mexicans. King eventually made just too many comments like this one. If you go down the road um, a few generations or maybe centuries with the intermarriage 
I'd like to see an America that's just so homogenous that it, we look a lot the same. This is an effort on the left, I think, to break down the American civilization and the American culture and turn it into something entirely different. I'm a champion for Western civilization. King was eventually punished and essentially excommunicated from the party by the party. But Republican leaders have of late developed quite a tolerance for intolerance. Listen to these insightful pithy observations on the notion of reparations for the descendants of slaves from Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama. They won't cry. They won't crime because they want to take over what you got. They want to control what you have. They want reparation because they think the people that do the crime are owed that. Bullshit! Openly, hideously, shamelessly racist. And the response from Republican leaders has been... Why? How did this happen? Who invited all these extremists into the grand old party? Will you unequivocally condemn David Duke and say that you don't want his vote or that of other white supremacists in this election? Well, just so you understand, I don't know anything about David Duke, okay? I don't know anything about what you're even talking about with uh, white supremacy or white supremacists. In her new book, The New York Times' Maggie Haberman writes that after that exchange happened here on CNN in 2016, Chris Christie warned Trump he needed to distance himself from white supremacists. Trump basically said, sure, but not right now. Why? Because, Trump said, quote, a lot of these people vote. A lot of these people vote. These extremist views are making the American experiment difficult to achieve. How can you work on legislation with someone who pushes messaging and seems to subscribe to QAnon, a group that accuses Democrats of being part of a satanic, pedophilic cult that eats babies. They cast their political opponents not just as wrong, but as evil. And that's how you get this. January 6, 2021. Forget defunding the police. This is physically assaulting the police. And Trump is promising the insurrectionists full pardons if he gets reelected. He's embracing that extremism. He's embracing that extremist violence. So is there an antidote for this polarizing poison that has already seeped into our everyday lives? One study I read today says, yes, but it won't be easy. It will require politicians, quote, to stop using divisive, demonizing us versus them language is key to say, I'm going to govern on behalf of everyone and to try to unify around universal values, unquote. And, you know, there was a time when that kind of behavior by a political candidate was not impossible to imagine. I can't trust Obama. I I, I have read about him, and he's not, he's not, he's a, um, he's an Arab. He is not. No? No? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. He's a a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on on fundamental issues. Republican senator and presidential nominee John McCain took that woman's microphone. 
political leaders today in the Republican Party seem more inclined to turn up the volume. I want to bring in a public servant whose career was caught in the middle of his own party, the Republican Party's extremism, and the other party, the Democratic Party's extreme measures to try and win. Can we at least find a path to making politics normal again? The outgoing Republican Congressman Peter Meyer of Michigan joins me live next. Few politicians have felt the impact of today's extremist politics more than Michigan Republican Congressman Peter Meyer, who narrowly lost his Republican primary battle for re-election back in August after being one of only 10 Republican members of Congress who voted to impeach then-President Trump after the January 6th Capitol attack. Meyer lost to election liar John Gibbs, whom Democrats worked to boost in the primary, hoping that Gibbs will be easier for them to beat in November. Gibbs insists that it's, quote, mathematically impossible that Joe Biden won in 2020. Gibbs has accused Democrats of taking part in satanic rituals. Gibbs at one point argued that America has, quote, suffered as a result of the woman's suffrage movement. Michigan Congressman Peter Meyer uh, joins me now. Uh, Congressman, it's good to see you again. Democrats spent more than $400,000 on ads promoting Gibbs If he wins in November, is the Democratic Party at least partly responsible? You know, I think it's impossible to look at that type of uh, cynical action and not see a degree of of responsibility for having, frankly, achieved uh, the outcome that they may not have desired. Obviously, they they did that and they are hoping that they can flip this seat. Um, But uh, as I said before, you know, Less electable is not unelectable. And I think in the moment we are in right now, and I saw the segment you were playing earlier, you know, the assumption on the Democrats' behalf is that, you know, well, these you know, Republicans have a personality problem, um, so we will surely overperform. Uh, but the Democrats have a policy problem, and they have tried to avoid uh, any semblance of fixing what's wrong in their own house by just pointing out uh, the, the faults and the issues on the Republican side of the aisle. Um, but frankly, this is going to be a hard time when the economy is in the direction that it is right now, when gas prices continue to rise, uh, when inflation is crippling Americans' wallets. Um, you know, if the choice is between someone who is, is quote-unquote extreme uh, versus the party that has led us to where we are today, uh, you know, that's the choice they're leaving the American public with. Now, Democrats say all they did was highlight Gibbs's views and the Republican base embraced him. The Detroit News says that you outraised and outspent him. At the end of the day, are Republican voters the ones embracing extremism here? And and I, let me be very clear. I lost and I take responsibility for that. Uh, You know, the reality of that situation though is uh, if the Democrats tried to pawn that off as like, well, you know, we, we were just highlighting who this guy really is. Um, they're running very different ads today. And the reason why is because they are talking to two different audiences. Um, so I think for a party that thinks that a you know, couple thousand dollars worth of Facebook ads in 2016 swung an election uh, to then turn around and say that a half million dollars of expenditures in a single congressional race uh, were non-trivial um, and had zero impact, uh, it's a bit hard to square that circle. So look, I agree with you 
the Democrats have been playing with fire. Um, Democrats also made a move to help boost Arizona gubernatorial candidate Republican Carrie Lake over her primary opponent, Karen Taylor Robson, back in July. They sent this email thank Rob, thanking Robson for donating to Democratic candidates over the years. Um, and listen to what Carrie Lake, uh, the nominee, told Dana Bash when asked if she's going to accept the election results, whether she wins or not. My question won't. is, will you accept the results of your election in November? I'm going to win the election and I will accept that result. If you lose, will you accept that? I'm going to win the election and I will accept that result. Do you think the Democrats plan is going to backfire in some of these places? I think it's unquestionable that it will backfire in a few of these uh, seats. I mean, it's one thing to to look at what they did in the governor's race in Illinois, uh, or for that matter, the governor's race in Massachusetts, uh, and, and see that as a way of potentially sidelining a more electable official who could flip what would otherwise be, you know, a safe Democratic seat in normal times. Uh, it's a whole different thing to look at that and take that role in in swing seats. Um, just for a, a marginal advantage. Uh, but it gets back to just the fundamental cynicism in our politics right now. I mean, the, that there is nothing um, that won't go before strict partisan advantage, that everything is a cynical game of inches. And frankly, that rebounds back. I mean, I think there's a lot of, uh, you can look at the Senate race in, in Pennsylvania. You can look at the Senate race uh, down in Georgia. You have you know, flawed candidates on both sides of the aisle. You have, uh, you know, sort of these these calls to uh, ascend to something higher and to to plead for, uh, you know, somebody to, to to call out, you know, sort of the the BS that they see. And those those pleas are coming from both sides of the aisle. Uh, but then the easy, you know, response back is, well, that's another reliable vote uh, for our agenda. And it, when everything defaults back to that, uh, when everything is just a strict partisan contest. Uh, What else do we have? So I have to say, uh, you know, I admire your service uh, in the military, and I think you've taken some really brave votes. And I just wonder, I mean, this was such a crappy experience for you. Um, Are you done with politics? Uh, Has this just soured you on it forever, or might you run again sometime? Well, Jake, I mean, it it may have seemed... Crappy from the outside and, and obviously running for office. I mean, I think the old joke is that Congress has 435 people who, who hate their jobs and, and yet will do anything to keep it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I frankly, you know, do not walk away from this disillusioned. I don't walk away from this, you know, feeling, feeling sour. Um, I walk away seeing a lot of sort of worst expectations of, of the most depraved behavior having been confirmed. But um, if anything, I'm just, you know, uh, okay with my analytical judgment there. Uh, But, you know, what I really took away from my experience in Congress so far is how many of our problems in our politics uh, are downstream of maladministration, downstream of governmental incompetence, right? When everything is just in a place where we don't feel like we know what, where to even start with fixing the issues and the problems that we see. You know, and part of this is because of our expectation that the federal government will come in and do everything, that can be everything to all people. And the Republican Party used to be the party that looked at that and said, whoa, 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 you know, we want to push some of this power down. We think that local administration is going to be more effective, um, that we can answer some of these questions. The Democratic Party used to be the one that started with their goal in mind and then worked backwards on the means. 
right? But you have a Republican Party that is looking at Democrats who have seized institutions, and they say instead of saying we shouldn't have those institutions be partisan, fine, we accept that they're partisan. We want them to be our partisans. And meanwhile, the Democrats are taking, you know, that approach where they start with the rhetoric and then they work backwards to backfill legislation. So we have two aimless parties. And frankly, if the way we get out of that, I mean, some of that's going to be political reform, but some of that needs to be investing in what's tangible in our communities and focusing there. So that's my focus going forward is on West Michigan, is on ensuring that, you know, we are fixing some of those administration Mm -hmm. and governmental and policy problems that create the space for political dysfunction to arise. All right, Congressman Peter Meyer of Michigan, thank you so much. Hope to see you when you're back in town in a few weeks. Thank you, Jake. Being in law enforcement never has been what you would call a a safe job. But serving and protecting the American public seems more dangerous now than it's been in a couple of decades. What's driving people to shoot police officers at the rate they are? We're going to talk to FBI and policing veteran John Miller next. More police officers are being shot on the job. Just last Wednesday, officers were shot during a traffic stop in Decatur, Illinois, when a SWAT team was executing a warrant in Philly, and when a domestic disturbance turned into an ambush in Bristol, Connecticut. That's eight cops shot in just one day in the United States. The Fraternal Order of Police says 252 officers have been shot in the first nine months of this year. Fifty of them, 50, did not survive. Those numbers differ slightly from an FBI tally, but the attacks don't get the same attention as incidents where officers pull the trigger, likely because those events happen more often. To put into context, the Washington Post's database has 802 people being shot by police this year. CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller joins us now to discuss. John, the FBI says last year saw more cops killed intentionally in the line of duty since 9-11. What's going on? Well, that has been the subject of a lot of debate and questioning within law enforcement and even the FBI. I mean, if you look at uh, 293 in 2019, 312 cops shot and or killed in uh, 2020, 346 in 21, you see that number climbing each year. I mean, this year it would be up um, uh, a high percentage if if the numbers stay on track as we pass um, 252. The FBI did a study on this in 2017, and the conditions then after the Ferguson shooting of Michael Brown and other uh, incidents, uh, Eric Garner in New York City, um, created atmospherics that uh, really made them look at who is behind the police shootings and what are the motives. So what we learned is things you'd expect. 86% of uh, the people who shot at police had prior criminal records. 56% of them were known to the police department. Now, that is more interesting than it sounds because it means that agency had arrested them before and largely their Mm. experience was they hadn't resisted. Um, 60% of them have long histories of of drug uses. But it boiled down to two really interesting factors because one of them is a game changer. One is the obvious, which is 60... um, 48 percent, um, I'm sorry, I'm mixing up my numbers here, but um, 28 percent of them, and this is the game changer, had said to friends or family that they intended to shoot a cop or wanted to kill a cop. They were projecting that ahead of time. Um, And then the larger percentage, 40 percent, said 
They only did it to get away. And in most cases, they had started to flee before they shot. But so, that 28% is the thing that police departments are worried about. Yeah, so the 28%, I mean, that seems to me like that could be the difference. That's more than a quarter uh, of, of people who, that's their goal. They want to kill a cop. So that's, you know, that's scary. And, but it's also uh, interesting and important. Where would that come from, that I want to kill a cop mindset? So not an abstract figure to me. Um, when I was deputy police commissioner of New York City, I was at the scene where Officer uh, Ramos and Lou were both assassinated oh, yeah. as they were um, eating in their car uh, by an individual who drove up from Boston after tweeting, they took two of ours, that would be Michael Brown and Eric Garner, we're going to take two of theirs. Mm. Um, that was an intentional assassination where he felt he was bringing some kind of justice. If you fast forward to January of last year, we had Officer Jason Rivera and Wilbert Mora. That was another individual who, who texted a friend right before the police are on the way, it's going down. He planned to kill them before they got there. The FBI report, uh, which was anecdotal based on information with law enforcement and offenders from across the country, came to two interesting and fairly controversial conclusions. Based on their interviews with police departments across the country, they said, Almost to a person, they blamed, one, the relaxing of the drug laws and the decriminalization of, of different drugs because they felt that offenders they'd arrested before who hadn't resisted under influence of drugs would be more violent. Number mm -hmm. two, the anti-police sentiment um, was driving that 20, 28%, um, and that these were factors that came out of social media and mainstream media after a yeah. police shooting uh, where people were hearing a one-sided narrative and they felt they needed to do something to bring revenge. John Miller, thank you so much. Appreciate your time, sir. Good to see you again. You too. Thanks, Jake. Still to come, a story about classified documents that has nothing to do with a certain ex-president and his Palm Beach mansion. Chelsea Manning, who leaked reams of government material a dozen years ago, went to prison for it. She's now telling her side of the story. I have lots of questions for her. That's next. When the world first came to know Chelsea Manning in 2010, she was just 22 years old, an Army intelligence analyst and a whistleblower who shook up everything we thought we knew about U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. She leaked hundreds of thousands of classified documents to WikiLeaks. Now, to some, Manning is a hero. To others, she's a traitor. But after serving seven years in a military prison, including time in solitary, she was granted freedom when then-President Obama commuted her sentence in 2017. Chelsea Manning is now trying to reclaim the narrative about why she did and what she did in a new memoir titled Readme.text. Chelsea Manning joins us now. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. So the book is about offering your side of the story about why you leaked 750,000 documents uh, classified and sensitive to WikiLeaks. What ultimately do you think pushed you to take that extreme step. Right, so what I think it boiled down to was this incredible discrepancy, this like cognitive dissonance that I had between what the public was, and you know, I consider myself a very educated and informed member of the public prior to enlisting the military and deploying to Iraq in 2010. Um, but uh, you know, there was this discrepancy between what we had access to in the public 
versus what I actually finally saw on the ground and what we as you know a collective were really sort of seeing on the ground and experiencing every single day. One of the things that seemed to motivate your action, you write in the book that, quote, we, the occupying military force, didn't actually give a F about the Iraqi people. I have to say that's a pretty sweeping thing to say yeah. about thousands of service members. I know men and women who served in Iraq who, who yeah. absolutely cared about the Iraqi people. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I, that is a general statement, but I, a general sentiment. But uh, yeah, what I encountered was the majority of people um, we seem to care less about the civilian population and we put ourselves first, which makes sense to an extent. But, you know, I, I also got the sense that, you know, what, even whenever we were saying that, 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 uh, paying, that um, trying to protect or um, have some kind of, um, you know, uh, involvement of the host nation, uh, you know, nationals, if, if, if you will, um, the, it seemed to fall to the wayside or uh, be seen as more of a nuisance than as a, than, than as something that we should be concerned about. So the, the Wik WikiLeaks happened in 2010. Uh, in an interview that year by a British television station, Channel 4, a Taliban spokesman said the group would punish Afghan nationals working for the U.S. that are named in the WikiLeaks right. logs. Now, I don't know of any who have actually been harmed. Right. Um, but did that not worry you at all? I mean, there are individual Afghans and Iraqis who were working with the U.S., trying to help right. their country. Uh, and they were being named, and it might put them in jeopardy to have their names leaked. This actually got flushed out through the court-martial process. We, uh, we, we, we gathered, we were obviously given discovery and evidence, and um, those statements were made in 2010 and 2011. But, you know, as we came to find out later, you know, there were no informants' names in anything. Um, so the, I think that uh, this was an accident, or at least an assumption, uh, made on the part of the information review task force that was put together. Um, where they were, you know, they they made a statement that uh, that it could put put people's harms, you know, put could people could put people in harm's way. But uh, I was I was very careful in you know not uh, identifying what is called source identifying information, which is covered under a, a very different classification uh, and protocol system. There are a lot of traumatizing experiences that you write about from your childhood, from the military, from your prison uh, time. One that I had not heard you speak about before. Uh, is that you are a survivor of sexual assault while in the military. Uh, last month, as you may know, in a confidential survey, some 36,000 service members said they had been victims of sexual assault. Reports were up 13% last year. That's just what's being reported, of course. Yeah. There are victims out there who, like you, feel like they can't report it because no one will believe them or no one will care. Tell us about that. So yeah, I, while I was in the military, as, and especially under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, um, because this was uh, with a, uh, you know, I was identified, or I was, uh, I was presenting as male, and uh, the other person was, uh, was a male, so this was, it would have been uh, even, even any kind of relation whatsoever uh, that happened in, in that time frame uh, would have been uh, impermissible. Um, and also, this was an officer and, and then enlisted an encounter, um, and it became a, a non-consensual encounter. And uh, I do. Th I, I was the my immediate instinct was to hide it, to cover it up, and to pretend that it didn't happen. And it started to eat at me. Yeah, I'm so sorry that happened. You dedicate uh, this memoir to trans kids. Um, over the past year, we've seen a lot of legislation about trans kids. Um, I'm wondering what you would say to any of the lawmakers introducing these bills keeping trans kids from the bathrooms they want to use or, or being who they are, what you would say to these lawmakers? 
Uh, I mean, it's I have less of a message for the lawmakers and more as of a message to to the kids, which the lawmakers can hear if they if, if they so choose. Which is that you know, like we've we've faced reactionary waves, uh, you know, reactionary you know, attacks uh, against the queer and trans community uh, throughout history. You know, whether it be the HIV and AIDS pandemic, whether it be uh, under the Reagan administration with Anita Bryant and Moral Majority, we've we've faced this before. And I faced you know uh, my own you know like. Uh, you know, sort of reactionary rollbacks before in my own in my own life. Uh, that you know, even even regardless of what the law says, you are valued as a human being. You're valued as a person, uh, and we have survived these kinds of things and and progressed past these things, even whenever things do get rolled back. So, even though I do expect that you know rollbacks will continue, um, I, I I I hope to bring uh, at least some you know uh, light in, in into the into thinking about the future and the optimism that uh, that I have towards, you know, the, you know, getting past this because we've survived as a community. All right, Chelsea Manning, thank you so much. Thank you, Jake. Still ahead, a deep dive with the man writing the music for the new Little Mermaid movie, but we'll go a few leagues deeper with Lin-Manuel Miranda and his father, how the man who also gave us Hamilton is trying to get young people and Latinos excited about democracy once more. The Mirandas, next. He's not throwing away his shot. If you're looking to see Lin-Manuel Miranda's latest endeavor on the stage, look no further than Houston, where the Tony-winning musical savant campaigned tonight for Texas Democratic gubernatorial candidate Beto O'Rourke. He and his father hope to rally young Latino voters to head to the polls and support Democratic candidates next month. Lin-Manuel Miranda and his father, Luis Miranda, join us now. Thanks so much for joining us, gentlemen. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, Lin-Manuel, you're currently at the University of Houston, where you've been talking to young voters all day. What are they telling you about the issues they care most about this election, and will they turn out to vote? Yeah, it's, it's hard not to feel hopeful after talking the, to these incredible young students at the University of Houston. And, and really, they see it as uh, the most important election of their lifetimes. Uh, their bodies are on the ballot Gun violence is on the ballot. Immigration is on the ballot. Um, They are facing the most restrictive uh, voter laws uh, in the country, uh, and and they're really taking it in their own hands to to make sure they turn out the vote among their generation. So I I felt very hopeful talking to them today. Luis, you and Lin-Manuel have been focused on on helping to get out the vote, uh, especially in Latino communities. Polls show that since 2016, Democrats have been steadily losing support with Hispanic voters, uh, although views differ by religion, age, and region. Why do you think that is? Why do you think Democrats are struggling to maintain support with this critical group? I think that as long as Democrats uh, stay true to the beliefs of the party of working uh, for the working class Latino, we'll regain whatever uh, we have lost. The fact is that at least two-thirds of Latinos historically has voted for the Democratic Party and our candidate. And we'll see how this election will continue uh, to be a place where Latinos come home 
and vote for our candidates. We have to have a seat at the table. So it is nice to vote for others, but we have worked very hard also so that Latinos have a seat at the table. And you see, when, when we're there, when people who look like us and speak like us are represented and are running for office, we come out and vote and support them. Lin-Manuel, the current cast of Hamilton on Broadway released a lyric rewrite video last month to raise awareness about the importance of voting. Let's take a, a, a listen for that. Register to vote. So do you think artists getting involved does help with the get out the vote effort? You see it firsthand on the ground level. Yeah, well, I think what is I think what's valuable is is shining a spotlight where that wouldn't ordinarily be the case. I'm I'm here in Houston because um, we have incredible elections that are happening that I think the country is paying attention to. Uh, In addition to Beto O'Rourke, you have the incredible uh, Rochelle Garza, who would be the first Latina attorney general uh, in Texas. And, um, you know, I think what's um, what we can do is, is speak to, to what matters to us. And I think it's important that Texas knows that the country is watching them, uh, that we're watching to see um, how, how we vote on the most important issues of, of the day. Lin-Manuel, at its core, Hamilton uh, underscores the, the often undertold importance of immigrants in American history. And, and obviously in Texas, Governor Abbott uh, has set off something of a firestorm by busing Migrants uh, to Democratic-controlled cities, such as your home city of New York, Mayor Adams recently declared a state of emergency there because of the migrant surge. Um, Abbott says cities in Texas can't handle the influx. Uh, What's the solution? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, to use humans as political props is is, um, heinous isn't the word, horrifying uh, isn't the word. Um, I think we do need to be talking about immigration at a, na- a national level, at a state level, um, and, and, and finding humane solutions uh, to this. And, 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 and let me tell you, you know, in, in New York, we are a sanctuary city. Uh, I have been at the Port Authority Terminal uh, welcoming Venezuelans uh, who are leaving their country to come to the United States. But Texas and the governor, Governor Abbott, He's just using them as props. If we can work at the national level and Republicans have even stopped simple bills like DACA, uh, where there is an entire country in favor of legalizing these kids who were born or were raised here, Republicans have been stopping the immigration uh, debate uh, uh, immigration movement so that they can continue to weaponize immigration as a way to get their base to the votes, to the voting polls. Lin-Manuel, um, you're, you're currently writing the music for the live-action Little Mermaid movie set to be released next year. You said the original was the movie that made you fall in love with musicals. Um, could you explain that? And, and also, what's your response to the backlash we've seen over Ariel being played by a by a black actress. Yeah, I saw <laughs> I saw Little Mermaid when I was nine years old. Uh, I went on a play date with a friend. I could not believe when Under the Sea uh, began that I was watching a musical number 
uh, underwater, and it's probably as responsible for me uh, writing musicals as anything else. Um, I remember feeling weightless when I watched that film for the first time, then going back and dragging my parents, then going back and dragging my sister, and then calling in sick from school so I could be the first <laughs> kid to have it on VHS. I couldn't wait till the end of the school day. Um, it has been the great honor of my life to get to write four new songs, uh, lyrics for four new songs with Alan Menken for this new version. And, um, and, and frankly... Halle Bailey is a perfect aerial, and Rob Marshall, um, I thought, showed uh, incredible foresight to cast her. I've seen the daily, so I know how good she is, um, you know, to give oxygen to a very small minority uh, of people who, um, you know, hate any kind of change uh, is, is, to me, counterproductive, because the overwhelming majority of what I saw was, my goodness, she looks and sounds incredible in that trailer. Luis, you spent years as a political consultant. Your son certainly seems to know the issues. Have you ever encouraged him to run for office? Uh, No, I learned a long, long time ago that music and art was his lane. What I hope uh, and continue to encourage him to do is to use his mic, his talent, his intelligence to push people to think hard for the things that impact our lives. At the end of the day, art doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in our society. And speaking about the issues that impact us all, it's important for artists or people who are in politics like me. I know there's people watching this going, oh, stick to, stick to your writing, stay out of politics. I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> I'd love to be home writing a song right now. Uh, but at a time when... I never thought I'd see Roe v. Wade overturned in my lifetime. That was settled law by the time I was born in 1980. There's just too much at stake uh, for for any of us, whether you know whether we're in the arts or a- anyone in this country, uh, to stay silent and not go to the polls this November. Lin Manuel, Luis, thank you so much. It's great to see you both. Thank you for thank having you. us. And thank you so much for joining us tonight. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. Our coverage now continues with the glorious. Laura Coates, and the radiant Allison Camerata. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.